Hello, this is uh, Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast on Friday, November the 30th. 30th, thank you. I think. I am joined this week by Benjamin Hardy. What year is it? <laughs> uh, this week, we're going to have a discussion on the Literat Mayor's Race and about health care, especially the Medi- Medicaid work requirement reporting that... Benji's been reporting on so much, and who knows, maybe something else, but uh, those two topics are uh, plenty probably to, to take up our time. So, of course, the runoff election between Baker Curris and Frank Scott Jr. is uh, on December 4th. Early voting is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Got my sticker this morning. Yeah, that's what we need a video cast to, yeah. so you can sh- show that off. You can use your imagination, listeners. Uh, so the big news uh, that that of this week, or maybe even just today, is that campaign filings um, came out. The Pulaski County Clerk's Office. They show that both candidates have raised more than a hundred thousand dollars since uh, election day between November seventh and twenty fourth. Scott raised one hundred ten thousand dollars, according to his filing. Uh, Curris's filing. Um, and his campaign it comes from a, a larger period, and I'm not sure what the discrepancy is about, but it's from October 28th to November, 3rd, November 23rd, and it's um, 119000 Of that, around $103,000 was raised after uh, November 6th. So both have plenty of money to, to get their, their message out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they've, they've been out there quite a bit. There's a debate held... Uh, by Fox 16 and KRK uh, earlier this week. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of it revisited topics from, from the original race. The, the Probably the most contentious exchange uh, occurred in, in response uh, to a question about the Little Rock School District. <laughs> and uh, you did kind of a deep dive into that. Uh, so let's, yeah, let's talk about you know, that. I mean, the caveat here, of course, is like the mayor doesn't run the schools or have anything to do with the school district, really, in terms of direct oversight policy. I mean, so in a way, this is this is sort of a silly discussion to be having, or at least to be devoting so much time to it. But though, though, there's so so many things like that that you could say, and well, I mean, yeah. the thirty crossing, Very you know, true. that that Frank Scott. Certainly, that's in his record. But the mayor—I mean, even to some extent, the police, the police situation. Chief, since right. the police chief answers to the city manager rather than yeah. the mayor. They'll, they'll both have talked about playing larger roles in all these issues. Right, right, yeah. I mean, and certainly, you know, the, the, having a, a unified voice of the city behind the district is something that hasn't always happened in the past, and you know, you'd think would be important in in. Um, Everything from securing state and federal grants to um, coming up with a, with a plan for wraparound services. So, so yeah, it's not immaterial, but it, it also is a little odd to people, as some have noted online, that this is um, something that's commanded so much attention. But, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that the, the district's politics are just so emotionally fraught. I mean, it's something that, that voters care about a lot. Um, the, the same people that are most highly engaged in the mayor's race are, are people that have been extremely engaged with uh, the district's politics over the past several years since the state takeover. So this question, which came down to um, who is most in favor of local control, 
is sort of a uh, became a, a flashpoint. What happened, if if you haven't seen it, is um, you know Baker Curris has made um, this, this, his ties to the LRSD a, a, a selling point. I mean, his political career in a way was sort of sparked by this whole episode a few years ago when he was. Um, he was fired from his job as as superintendent of the Little Rock School District by Johnny Key, the education commissioner, um, evidently for for speaking out against the proliferation of charter school seats in the city, which Curris saw as, as uh, having a negative impact on the district. So, I mean, Curris has has you know used this, I think, especially for more liberal leaning voters uh, as a as you know a rallying cry that you know I'm the guy that got fired for standing up for the district. Well, so on this on, on this televised debate, uh, Frank Scott sort of poked a hole in that by saying that um, Curris was actually against local control when the takeover first happened in 2015, and that that's in fact why he was chosen for the job of superintendent uh, by Johnny Key. Um, he was appointed to replace um, former uh, superintendent Dexter Suggs um, in 2015 and served for about a year before his eventual termination. And so, I mean, Curris responded to that that accusation with with great indignation. He said it was an absolute fabrication that he's never been against local control. And you know, the, the shortest explanation is it's just spin from both parties here. I mean, um, what happened at the time in 2015 is that Curris um, Curris told the State Board of Education it would be a bad idea, terrible idea, were his actual words to reinstate the local board, the local school board, which had been dissolved by um, when the state took over the district. And there is a state board member who made a motion to, to do just that uh, because she was a, she had been against the takeover from the beginning. Um, she made a motion to reinstate the local board in some sort of partnership role um, with Curris as newly insta- installed superintendent. Curris said, no, uh, if you do that, I won't know who I'm answering to. I don't, wanna, don't know whether it's this reinstated local board or whether it's the education commissioner, which normally acts as the board when um, a district is, has been taken over by the state. So he said, you know, this, is a, this would confuse the chain of command. Um, so the question is, like, does, does that constitute him saying he's against local control? Well, you know, he was arguing against giving control back to the local school board to some extent. So, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, definitely. Um, on the other hand, he wasn't arguing against, I mean, for or against the state takeover itself. He was saying that this particular sort of arrangement was a problem. Yeah. And that's probably enough to be said about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it it, uh, it sort of occupied a, a lot of political chatter. Right. I mean, I guess one more thing I would say, which is that it, it, it's it's interesting, the response to, to all this, which is, I mean, I've seen Kerr supporters say, you know, Frank Scott's a liar. Uh, for daring to insinuate that Baker Curris was ever against local control. I've seen Scott supporters say, you know, Curris is a liar. It's clear that he was always for the state takeover and was always against the locally elected school board, which was majority black. And a lot of the, I think, the sort of undercurrents of this debate come down to that, to some of those, you know, racial undercurrents within the school district. Um, so, you know, it's... it's um, it's it's interesting to see how the supporters on both sides of the issue, both candidates, have you know have have responded so strongly to this because it's clearly just so emotional. Yeah. So, uh, do you have any bold predictions on how it's going to go? I have none. Really? <laughs> none at all. Well, I, I think you've got to say that Scott's the favorite uh, just based on the. 
the general election. Of course, this is all. Well, there is also a very unbiased poll which came out, correct? That there is. I, we were supposed to talk about that. I don't. I don't remember any of the the poll findings. Um, that well, I I think it found that Scott was ahead by five points, um, which it sort of characterized incorrectly as a statistical tie because that was within the, the margin of error. Um, Right. That was another that was another big uh, sort of political insider story with regard to the mayor's race this week. Um, KRK did a story on on this poll and quoted Chris Burks, who's a, a local lawyer and um, who's worked for the Democratic Party um, for the state for a long time and was a Saban supporter and now is a Kerr supporter. And we wrote about the KRK story and then sort of gradually started questioning the poll. And um, our skepticism about it was revealed. Uh, or David Ramsey was one that was reporting this sort of revealed in real time and eventually did a long follow up where we explained that Chris Burks had commissioned this poll um, that was very biased. Uh, the questions were were framed in a way that was favorable favorable for for Curris and and not for Scott. We we called it a push poll. Uh, Burks strenuously objected to that characterization. Um, it's a push poll. <laughs> it's, it, I, I just I just I find that so offensive that 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 objection. Like when you read the questions, it's like. Would you be more or less likely to vote for Frank Scott if you knew that he was what um, the pastor at a church that um, promotes homophobic ideas or something like that? I mean, it, I forget the exact phrasing. People can go online and read them, but I mean, the questions are clearly, I mean, are loaded in such a way that that's. I mean, you could not make an argument. That this is a, an unbiased way of framing these questions. Yes, uh, Burks claimed that he. He did this all alone. That it was it was he was merely uh, he's interested in progressive politics and and just and wanted to to see where the city was. Um, in any case, it's sort of aside from from the poll itself uh, or, or that kind of backstory. The leaking of it is kind of funny because even in a poll that was biased, clearly biased against him, Scott is ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I mean, I, obviously, turnout is is the key factor, um, and and race has been an undercurrent um, in, in the contest all along, and and certainly, as we just discussed, continues to be. But I think age is just as much. Uh, I think that, right. that there, so uh, you know, it is seen as a change election, and both candidates have have positioned themselves as the change agents. But, you know, it's I think it's easier for a 34 year old black man to do that than a 64 year old white guy. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, another thing to be pointed out is, uh, you know, the a a better poll that came out, you know, before the general election um, showed um, all three candidates at the time essentially in a tie. um, But there was a huge undecided section and then the election results didn't look a lot like that poll, or at least, I mean, it appeared a lot of the undecideds broke for Scott, you know, which was a surprise to a lot of folks. And I think in in the recent um, poll that came out, I mean, it also showed, I mean, a large section of undecided people, which 
makes some sense considering that Warwick Saban got what almost 30% of the vote in the general and I mean perhaps many of his supporters are still making up their minds sure okay well make sure you go vote don't forget December 4th it's coming soon well we uh, Max and I have talked about this often but we haven't had you on um, anytime in recent months to talk about what's going on and in healthcare in the state, and you... Uh, Why not? I've been right over there. I know, I know. Uh, we've blown it. But you uh, recently wrote, really, the comprehensive uh, story on on Medicaid uh, work requirement reporting rules and, and their flaws. And, uh, you know, there's been development since then. So mm-hmm. catch us up. Where are we? Well, it's, you know, <laughs> we could spend an hour talking about this. Um, but um, we are, uh, well, we're headed into December, and that means that we're about to see more people lose coverage. Um, we won't know those numbers until probably December 15th. That's typically when the state's been reporting on coverage losses. But, um, you know, if it's anything like previous months, we'll probably see another 4,000 people or so uh, lose coverage. Um, the good news for those people and for anybody else that's lost coverage is um, when the new year starts, then they can sign up for Arkansas Works again. The way this the policy is structured is that if you are non-compliant with the requirement for three months, um, any three months out of a given calendar year, then you're not only cut off but locked out of Medicaid until the end of the year. Um, but once 2019 begins, then the clock sort of resets. And so um, anyone that, that lost coverage— super unfair— that it's like that, though, right? Why that is that's just for administrative reasons that it's easier for them to reset them all at once. Then, <laughs> you mean sure? Like if you happen to be non-compliant at the end of the year, then you're more likely than you don't get punished nearly as hard as being non-compliant in January, right? Yeah, I mean it's for administrative reasons, and and a lot of the sort of you know, there's so many things about this policy that seem. Um, arbitrary and um, sort of, uh, you know, you think like, why are they doing this? And a lot of times the answer seems to come down to, well, it was an attempt to just make things easier on DHS, you know. So similarly, they, for example, one of the things that, you know, I think has been really underreported by a lot of outlets is how many people were automatically exempted from reporting just because DHS had income information on file for them. Um, it, whenever you apply for Medicaid, you have to submit some sort of information verifying your income, like a pay stub or something. So um, just I'll, let's say I'm within the age range for the work requirement, um, and it applies to me. And when I applied for Medicaid, then I was working a part-time job um, making minimum wage. And because that's part of my income information submitted to DHS, they um, – automatically exempt me from reporting even if I lose that job within a week you know I still I'm still exempt until my verification rolls around again in the next year um, and I say that just because like it ends up with this sort of weird perverse system where you have all of these rules that just seem to the beneficiaries completely arbitrary about like why why the hell would you exempt this person but not this other person regardless of how much they're actually working just because you ha- and the answer is just because it's easier to do it that way right um, so, uh, meanwhile, there's been some, some developments in the Kentucky lawsuit, you know, so all of these things are kind of like states uh, do their Medicaid policy distinct from each other. So, so what's happening in Kentucky, which tried to implement a work requirement rule, 
and was blocked by a federal judge earlier this year. What's happening there doesn't directly affect Arkansas, but it definitely does indirectly because um, the lawsuit over Arkansas's work requirement is before the same judge as the Kentucky case. So, you know, we're kind of keeping an eye on, on Kentucky to see what, what might happen here, too. Um, the recent development there is that the, the Trump administration um, basically reapproved the work requirement. So um, back over the summer, um, these plaintiffs from Kentucky challenged the validity of it and uh, of, of the requirement to begin with. And a federal judge agreed that the Trump administration hadn't done its due diligence, sort of, in, in, in considering the proposal before it gave it this rubber stamp of, of yes, you, you may proceed, Kentucky. So the judge said, you know, the Trump administration needs to do a better job of showing that it sort of checked all these boxes and in, in, in thinking about what the impact of this policy could be. And so um, in the meantime, you know, the, the Kentucky requirement is on ice. Well, months have passed. The Trump administration has checked those boxes, and now it's saying, "All right, um, Kentucky, you can you can do the work requirement again." So, so this means that there's going to have to be some new ruling on that case, probably. I mean, the, the judge will have to issue a ruling more on the sort of substantial uh, merits of the policy than this sort of narrow thing about review. Meanwhile, Sima Verma, the uh, administrator, federal administrator uh, who's in charge of, of Medicaid and Medicare, um, gave some hints that maybe she's not happy with how things are going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, that's that's my <laughs> my interpretation, or at least, um, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't, I shouldn't really speculate on that because who knows why? I mean, maybe it's because of the court case ongoing, and she's trying to signal that she's doing her, her due diligence, but. But yeah, there was some interesting remarks she made in a uh, press briefing earlier this week, in which um, someone, you know, several reporters asked about Arkansas specifically. I mean, Arkansas is really in the spotlight here because it's the only state in the country to be doing this right now to get one up and running, um, though, though others are trying to in 2019. And I mean, she issued. A, I mean, she her statements were pretty sort of pro forma, like work requirements are good because they incentivize work, and work is good good for people, makes them healthy, and and so on. But she also said, the interesting part to me is she, she made it very clear. She was like, there's a distinction between the policy, the work requirements, which is very good, and the implementation of that policy. She didn't say Arkansas is not doing its implementation right, but she, you know, you can kind of read between the lines there. So um, we'll see what, what, you know, what, if anything, that means. If CMS is sort of pressuring Arkansas to, like, you know, tune up its system better to... Because CMS has the stick to to require Arkansas to do whatever it should be. Right. It, it does. Right. I mean, CMS is the one that approved this waiver. And um, it, it has, I mean, it is providing sort of oversight of the waiver. So she also said, like, CMS has been in constant contact with, with Arkansas about that. So, you know, I'd be curious to know what those discussions look like. Um, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what that actually means in, in terms of policy, if that means we will see some change coming in how Arkansas is implementing this thing. But um, who knows? Okay. Well, we know that you'll keep us posted. Let's move on to endorsements. What do you have? Oh, um, so I'm endorsing the uh, new Coen Brothers movie on Netflix, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, I can't wait to watch it. I might watch it tonight, you depending should. on what you say. <laughs> well, I mean, um, so uh, I haven't kept up with, like, every Coen Brothers film, so I don't know, like, 
you know, many people do. They're, you know, the ins and outs of everything they've done. But um, this is like a series of vignettes, six sort of short films. I, I, I heard that it was originally envisioned as like a, a Netflix series. And, um, and then for whatever reason, they decided to not do that. And it seems like a really good decision, I think. Cause like it, I, I think it works very well as like sort of this package of, of scenes did you watch it in one setting? Um, yes, it should be watched in one setting for sure. Um, the The tone of them really sort of jumps around and keeps you guessing, and um, I feel like that's part of the emotional impact of it is just like shifting to these unrelated stories. Uh, I mean, they're all so it's all these sort of Western meditations on death. I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, but. Um, what else can I say without well, giving it away? A lot of great actors who regularly work with the Coens. That's true. Yeah, Tom Waits, uh, Liam Neeson. Um, who else? Um, Tim Blake Nelson is is a singing cowboy. <laughs> Correct. Yes, uh, but the title character, um, and which is my favorite of of the of the six, um, just just a sort of incredible grotesque. Um, rendition of like the western gunslinger mythos cool uh i'll do two uh briefly i think homecoming the amazon show that is the adaptation of the gimlet podcast show that is about a shady military contractor stars julia roberts and what is the actor's name uh he's a, a young black actor who stephen james Who's, I can't help you. He's going to be big, I think. He's in uh, the new Barry Jenkins, James Baldwin adaptation. Anyway, it's totally worth watching. It's 30 minutes, which I really like in a drama. Um, and it's by Sam uh, Ismail, who uh, is most well-known for Mr. Robot. And it has sort of similar formal flourishes as Mr. Robot like crazy over-the-top music, uh, interesting framing and lighting. And, yeah, it's it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's worth checking out, especially because it's so easily digestible. Um, and then I'll do some log rolling since we've got Benji on. The Arkansas Nonprofit News Network, which Benji is a uh, longtime prolific contributor to, is amid a big fundraising push thanks to – uh, our participation in Newsmatch, which is uh, a two-month um, fundraising matching program where uh, for every individual donation up to $1,000, we get dollar-for-dollar dollar, uh, match. So uh, think about giving. <laughs> we, yeah. we uh, you know, Benji has done uh, easily the the – the, the closest, best, most informed uh, beat reporting on healthcare in Arkansas this year and in years past. Uh, we've done um, big projects on juvenile justice, and we, we really want to expand public out corruption. public corruption. Uh, really want to continue on the public corruption beat next year. We've got a lot of stories that are, you know, a third reported, half reported that mm. uh, we can we can start churning out soon. Uh, and and expand into other areas that that don't get the coverage they deserve. Uh, I mean, there's sort of endless education, yeah. the environment. We'd love to to cover the legislative session right. in strategic ways. 
Um, and, you know, the Democrat Gazette is a great newspaper, and we are lucky as a state to have a newspaper with its resources that's locally owned. Um, but, you know, I think that they've got a tough future ahead, and it's not it doesn't have the resources that it did five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 and, and years ago. And there's just stories that they're not going to do. I mean, They're not going to do for one reason or another. I mean, it's hard for them even to do investigative work that, you know, takes – it's hard for them to devote one reporter to a story that's going to take a month to do. Right. And it's really hard for everybody else and basically impossible. And the way – by, by everybody else, you mean other newspapers. I mean other newspapers and television stations, other media. And – uh, and provides its work for free to really anyone that wants it around the state. And so far, that's been about 20, uh, 20 newspapers mostly, but also some some websites. And um, yeah, it's been it's been really well received. Yeah, you know, so in reporting this this recent Medicaid story, I mean, one thing I did to to get. Um, a hold of beneficiaries was push out this Facebook ad, just like asking people to get in touch with me. And um, I've been in touch with a number of people um, that I never didn't put in the story, but still they, you know, were telling me their sort of healthcare stories. And one of them was this woman from Mountain Home who um, she was not in, in my story, but I talked to her quite a bit online about her and her daughter's healthcare situation. And um, and she told me just today that, that uh, my story was in the Baxter Bulletin. Um, and she was excited to see it in her local paper. So I was really thrilled about that. You know that um, they, they've they've ran a number of healthcare stories in the past. This is the Jonesboro Sun and the Times Record in Fort Smith and others. So um, you know it's it's great to know that these local papers are are running these stories and it's free to them. Um, you know I, I think it helps to keep them. Uh, uh, I mean any content for them you know is is good news for their future as well. Right. Well, yeah, just to give you a sense of cost, I mean, we spent probably as much on the Facebook ad to find beneficiaries as we would, as the Arkansas Times would on a normal cover story. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's hard to pay for things out there, and, and Anne is devoted to paying what it takes to do stories that are complicated well. So, anyway, uh, thanks, thanks for consideration go to arknews.org to learn more and to donate uh matching matching donation until one for one until the end of the year and thanks for listening to the weekend review podcast we'll be back next week to talk the about the results of the mayoral mayoral race and whatever else see ya all right